Hello and welcome to the Blockchain and Us, where pioneers and thought leaders talk about their journey in blockchain technology, crypto assets, and the token economy. And I'm your host, Manuel Staggers. This episode has support from my very own The Blockchain and Us newsletter. Get an email from me every two weeks with a very short summary of new podcast episodes so you can immediately pick those interviews you'd like to listen to. To stay up to date, just visit www.theblockchainandus.com and sign up today. My guest today is Anne Connolly. Anne is passionate about harnessing blockchain technology to transform the lives of people in developing countries, and she is faculty at Singularity University at NASA Ames in Silicon Valley and Singularity U Canada, where she teaches global leaders how exponential technologies can solve problems that impact over a billion people. She has been an active part of the global blockchain community since 2012, working with and advising notable companies, including Jax, Ledger Labs, and Buns, and she is currently the vice chair of the board of Blockchain Canada. She previously worked with Doctors Without Borders Canada in the Central African Republic and the Democratic Republic of Congo, and currently serves on their board of directors. Anne has a Bachelor of Life Sciences from Queen's University, an MBA from McMaster University, and a FinTech certificate from MIT. She was honored as one of CBC's 12 Young Leaders Changing Canada and one of the 50 Most Inspirational Women in Technology in Canada. And now to the conversation with Anne Connolly. Hi, Anne, and many thanks for taking time today. Thanks for having me on. Anne, you're extremely active in the blockchain space in many different domains. And I'd like to start with your teaching activity at Singularity University. Let's perhaps start with what you're doing there. Yeah, absolutely. So Singularity University is... Um Kind of a combination of an education center and a think tank out of Silicon Valley in California. And their whole goal is essentially to teach people how to use exponential technology to solve problems that impact a billion people or more. Um, and the way they do that is really when you think about how people solve problems in today's world, most people make the problem 10% better. Uh, their solution makes it 10% better. They want people to start thinking with a 10x mindset. So If you were going to make this issue 10 times better, how would you do that? And the kinds of ideas that you come up with are much greater, much grander, and much more exciting. Um, and so that's really what uh, the way they work. So I teach uh, about blockchain and what the future of decentralized society is going to look like to help people to understand what the true potential of blockchain technology is much beyond the cryptocurrency, which is what most people tend to think about when they hear the word blockchain. Okay. And who do you teach the classes to? So there's a variety of different programs, but um, most of the participants are very global. They come from, you know, all countries around the world. They're typically kind of higher level executives or very successful entrepreneurs, people who have you know worked in a particular industry for a long time, but are now realizing that their industries are, are not keeping up from an innovation standpoint and they want to understand, you know, what does the future look like and how does my industry fit in with it? Mm -hmm. One of your big topics is also blockchain technology for social impact. Is that part of the Singularity program as well, or is that more a separate initiative of yours? It's definitely, you know, something that I talk about at Singularity. It's certainly my, my true passion in the blockchain space. I, mean, I used to work in the humanitarian industry. And so for me, when I first started learning about cryptocurrency and blockchain, that was the area where I saw there was going to be the most potential. Uh, and so I do talk a lot about the intersection of blockchain and social impact, but also the intersection of blockchain and human rights, uh, both at Singularity and uh, in other areas of Mm -hmm. How, I mean, I'm curious about that because I did quite some research on um, impact investing, but that was before, you know, there was a blockchain or the concept of distributed ledgers and all that. So I'm wondering how did, or, or was there a specific event where all of a sudden you noticed there's a new thing, you know, a new kid on the block that can make that whole social impact space better? Yeah, the real, uh, my, I call it my aha moment. Um, mm -hmm. And it, it was essentially when I used to work uh, in the humanitarian sector, I worked for Doctors Without Borders and some other organizations. And, um, you know, I, uh, at one point in time, was living in Central African Republic, running a pediatric malnutrition and malaria program. And we had, you know, more than 200 staff members that we had to pay 
in an area that was, you know, insecure, but most importantly, unbanked. And so I used to carry knapsacks full of money, of cash through these, these, you know, guerrilla war zones and, um, and through military checkpoints and these types of things, which is a highly, highly dangerous thing to do. Um, and so when I learned about Bitcoin, I, this was the first use case I really thought about was just the ability to send money from anywhere in the world uh, with great efficiency, but more importantly, at the protection of human lives. You know, so we were no longer going to put people at risk of being kidnapped or robbed or killed um, because we could send money through you know, mobile phones and that kind of thing. So that was the real moment that I began to understand its potential. And then, of course, from there, I started to learn more about remittances and, and then well into decentralization and really saw that this technology was going to be most transformative for the populations that I had previously worked with in a lot of African countries and, and other underdeveloped nations around the world. Mm -hmm. Cool. When was that event with um, your realization about Bitcoin? That was 2012, um, a little while back now, which was uh, an exciting time to, to get involved in the technology because it was still early days in a sense. Um, and uh, although I do, I do remember telling people about my passion for Bitcoin back then and, and getting laughed at quite a bit. So it's nice to be... Uh, taken a little more seriously these days. Mm -hmm, cool. But did you actually then convert these bags of uh, cash into Bitcoins and pay people, you know, into their wallets directly? Oh, no, 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 of course not. Of course not. I mean, it, it was just really what made me realize about what the, you know, the potential of the technology and what it could be used for. I mean, back mm. then, there's absolutely no way that that was even feasible. I mean, today, it's it's not even practical when you look at it um, in a lot of in a lot of places, right? I mean, you have to have a population that has you know full smartphone access, full internet access, full electricity access. Um, you have to have staff that are you know capable of understanding and operating um, blockchain applications, which is not always the easiest thing to do. And then the people, most importantly, have to have that last mile. They have to be able to convert the money or the Bitcoin back to money, which doesn't exist in a lot of these places. So. You know, I think it's it's more about um, being excited about the potential and looking at where the gaps in that supply chain, I guess you could sort of call it, um, that still needs to be filled by technological solutions or even infrastructure solutions. If not digital money, you know, that can be easily transported and transferred. What is the main value proposition for you for blockchain technology in the social impact space? Oh, for me, it's 100% about freedom, you know, and, and when you look at particularly freedom from a human rights perspective, it really brings ownership back to the individual. So you can look at applications around you know, freedom of, of property rights and that kind of thing with land titles. But for me, it really gets into where things are most important around you know, freedom of speech, uh, not you know, having your government turn off social media or turn off the Internet. Um, and really just giving people the ability to live out their lives in a, in a way that enables them choice and, and uh, ensures that they aren't restricted in, in the human rights that we as a society have decided that every individual is entitled to. Um, and so it's, you know, when you look at the financial measures, that's, that's a big part, particularly now. If you look at even Venezuela, um, there, <laughs> what's happening there where you have a country with an inflation rate of 8%, hundred thousand percent um it's actually become what started as a financial crisis and has now become a health crisis where people are starving or people are going back to work in gold mines and they're getting malaria from sleeping in the caves and so that's where you know you start to see the importance of, of these restrictions on freedom that are having huge impacts on the actual you know, survivability uh, survivability of, of societies Mm -hmm. How do you? How are you involved in projects that you know plan to roll out this technology in this space? Um, so I do a lot of education in the nonprofit space and working with humanitarian organizations to help them understand. First of all, you know what the technology is. What are the the varieties of applications? Because when you look at particularly the humanitarian space as a whole. Um, you know, you can look at things like global money transfer, which they do a lot of fundraising. You can then look at supply chain, medical records. Um, there are significant numbers of, of applications in that space. The trick is really helping them to overcome the uh, the FUD, you know, the fear, uncertainty, doubt, because it's a huge issue. 
unlike other technologies, say like 3D printing, where it's sort of inherently obvious what it could be good for and the comfort level is there. With blockchain, you don't get the same. So I spend a lot of time um, working with groups like that to, to try to understand how they can apply this. And then um, I'm also advising a really neat company out of Toronto called Buns, B-U-N-Z, that is, uh, has created a trade and barter platform that uses cryptocurrency. And their goal really is to help keep uh, objects out of the trash uh, and have an impact on climate change, which is great. Mm -hmm, cool. But I'm, I'm curious about how you actually convince, you know, some of these agencies to use <laughs> certain, certain of these, of these products, you know, many of which are sound great or look great on paper, but yeah. then when, when they have to deliver, that's another story. So if you're involved in a project yourself, then of course, you know more about it. But what if you just have to look at what's on offer and what might fill a certain gap? Yeah. Often I'm not successful. I will admit that. I think part of the, the key pieces is, is first and foremost, finding the right person to talk to. Um, because the technology is, is very advanced, it's, you know, it's very novel and it's confusing to a lot of people. You have to find someone that is already excited to learn and excited to, you know, go through this process with you, even if they don't understand. If you don't have that, it's dead in the water right away. Um, I think the next piece is really to, Be able to quell your own enthusiasm for the technology. I, I get so excited about blockchain and its potential and what it can do. Um, and sometimes that's a bit much for people. They don't want to be evangelized to. You know, they want to have a conversation that looks at the, the pros and the cons, even if you yourself don't really believe that the cons are, are that valid. Um, so that's another piece. And then being able to, I think, particularly for audiences or for individuals that I speak to in, in the North American context, is helping them understand the perspective of someone who is not as fortunate as they are. You know, so a lot of, um, a lot of North Americans can't possibly fathom why you would want a currency that isn't government backed. And then I'll talk to them about, you know, Zimbabwe and how they had an 86 billion percent inflation rate and the impact that that had and what it looks like to watch your life savings disappear overnight. And, and that can really help them appreciate that, you know, maybe some of this technology isn't going to be as transformative for them, but it will be incredibly transformative for other people in the world. So that's, that's a huge help. Um, But then I think one of my, my biggest success points has really just been about how do you find the lowest entry point for that group or for that person? So what is the easiest way they can start to understand and appreciate the technology? And the best way to do that is to send them some Bitcoin and just show them how easy it is. You help them set up a wallet and you say, okay, we're here together at this coffee shop. I sent you some Bitcoin. I want you to imagine that you're in Congo and you need money. How would you do it today? And how would that, how different would that be if I could send it to you in Bitcoin? And then they start to really say, okay, yeah, I, I'm starting to get this. Um, and, and then you can, you've got, you've built a bit of trust up and you can move on to some of the more, more, um, impressive applications from there. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Awesome. Um, I think that always works, right? If you put something in people's hands and they can play with it. But of course, there's also <laughs> certain, certain downside to it because, I mean, you spoke of inflation. And, you know, with, with fiat money, but that always implies that cryptocurrencies don't have inflation and are always worth more, hopefully. But I mean, what's happening now, right? For example, where the markets are crashing in Bitcoin, then somebody could argue, well, that also has, you know, 100% inflation. And what do you do then? You know, when, when you send them something and they look at it very critically and say, like, I, I prefer US dollars. Hmm. Yeah. And I do, I do get people who say that, you know, they, they'll fight back on some of this. And I think the key thing to appreciate is there's so many different cryptocurrencies out there that many of them that are, you know, very uh, volatile are not meant to be used as currency. You know, they're utility tokens or security tokens or what have you, but their, their purpose is not to be stable. Um, while, you know, if that's really what you want, there are solutions for that. There are a number of different stable coins out there that you can use just for the sending purposes or, or whatever. Um, but again, I think it comes back to what's the mechanism behind the volatility. Um, and for me, it's concerning that people are very comfortable having, you know, a government just decide to print money whenever they want to. Um, that to me is, 
is again comes back to this mentality and, and, and the sort of perspective of someone who lives in a, a good country or, or a more stable or more predictable country um, where something like that is is a reasonable thing to think but if if you're living somewhere where your governments aren't trustworthy a lot of corruption like that's a very scary thing to have to rely on a group of people who are generally not not a trustworthy group to be destroying your financial system or, or managing it or mismanaging it. Um, and so I think that's a big part of it. Again, it's this shifting of the perspectives of the people you're talking to. Yeah, exactly. Good point. In your estimate, right, out of maybe 10 social impact projects, how many use some sort of blockchain technology today? Yeah, I mean, zero or, you know, zero to one would be, would be the number. I mean, the vast majority are not using it for for a variety of reasons, right? I mean, first and foremost, it's it's still very new technology. Bitcoin is ten years old. Ether's four years old. Like, it, this is not mainstream stuff. And I think when you look at particularly the social impact space, um, one of the things I've come to realize as to why they're less adopting of this, you know, particular of this technology and, and other innovations, is because the you know in the startup world we're very accustomed to failure. You know, if you fail, you fail fast, you move on. In the humanitarian space, failure is the loss of human lives, right? You know, it's the, the opportunity cost of using something that's tried and true over, you know, this new innovation. It's really about people. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so the, the dangers of trying new things or working with startups is significantly higher than it would be in any other industry. And so, you know, fundamentally, these, these projects, these innovations need to be you know, uh, good turnkey ready uh, to ensure that they're going to be very successful um, and, and you're not going to lose anything that, that truly matters over small failures. Um, and so I think that's, that's part of it. I think education is another part of it. Um, the more people start to learn about it and see how great it is, then, then the adoption will go straight up. And then again, it comes back to last mile. You know, if, if it's a project around crypto, how are they getting the crypto? How are they converting the crypto? Um, and do they have the infrastructure needed to maintain a system like that? So we're going to see, I think it's, again, still very early days. The social impact world is generally a little bit um, laggard in terms of technology. But once they realize how transformative it is, I think we're going to see some massive adoption. Yeah, it, hopefully it's exponential then. <laughs> I hope so, yes. <laughs> um, I've also heard you speak about um, the data issue in social impact. Maybe uh -huh. can you speak about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the biggest topics of conversation in and around kind of tracking the success of impact initiatives and what that looks like. And um, there's concerns, of course, around, okay, so you donate your money and it goes into this big black hole and you hope it's done some good, but you're not really sure. And so charities and nonprofits are increasingly looking at, okay, how can we report back with meaningful um, data while also appreciating that what the donor might want to see is maybe not the best way to actually achieve aid. You know, so a, a good example of that would be the, the child sponsorship programs that people love. You know, you get this picture of a kid, you put it on your fridge, you send thirty-five dollars every month. It's not a good way to do aid um, or these, you know, volunteerism trips, that kind of thing. And so there's there's a bit of a push and pull between ensuring that your the donations are going towards or you know, going towards quality programming while also keeping donors happy at the same time. And so um, what you can get with blockchain that is, that is very neat is, you know, this more direct link between what the donor gave and what they got for that money. Um, and, and that's exciting for donors. And then that can expand out, of course, into the impact investment space or pay for performance type models uh, where, you know, a smart contract will trigger the next level of payment once once you know a verification of, of impact has been seen. Now again, it's it's not a perfect system. You can you have to look at you know how is the data being verified and who's doing the verification and all these sorts of things. But again, I think it, I think it will add value to the system um, compared to what we have today. Yeah, absolutely. I think so too. And I mean, it's such a no brainer if you think about the value proposition of the technology and all the pain points in, in development and social impact. So I think it makes perfect sense. But still, I mean, you mentioned it before, the adoption is just very low because, you know, it's difficult to use. The technology is still very early days. What, in your view, is the main 
maybe the main leap that the technology or the user experience should make for the technology to be more useful? Yeah, it's it's completely UX UI. Uh, that's that's truly my view on things. Is there are a small handful of apps out there now that are much better than um, what we saw, you know, a couple of years ago. But the, the vast majority of the technology is still very difficult for an ordinary person to use. And I think some of the the highest caliber tech people out there have trouble appreciating that. You know, I, I remember walking my mother through flying ether in the early days. Um, she, was, she was a true early adopter. I'm quite proud of her. Um, but it, you know, I mean, we're, we're trying to use mist and we're trying to get on these different changes and, um, it was not an easy process. Yeah. And so to assume that an ordinary person who has alternatives in most cases, um, is going to go through all this, this, uh, you know, shenanigans trying to get the, their money sent or using a decentralized application when, when they've got something else. I think is delusional. They're they're not passionate about blockchain. They just mm -hmm. want something that solves their problem. Yeah. So I think that's really where we need to spend a lot of, of focus and time in the in the coming five years or so is really ensuring that these apps are designed for the ordinary Joe, uh, because otherwise they just won't take off. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. I think you're spot on there. I mean, just if you, if we circle back quickly to your course at Singularity University, but you mentioned the target audience there is global leaders. So mm -hmm. maybe those would be the people who could supply services to those, you know, who need them in maybe the developing world. Um, where in your experience do they see the main points that have to be ironed out in the technology for it to be useful? Yeah, I think my biggest, uh, my biggest issue around those groups and, and what they see, I think sometimes they, they themselves struggle to to see what a world that is decentralized and doesn't have centralized players in it looks like or to struggle why somebody would want that. Um, and so the key thing around really those relationships and that education is ensuring that they themselves truly believe it. It's not so much about presenting the information to them, but helping them really understand that this is happening um, and this is what society is going to look like. Now, I think... Um, For them to take it back, they have an incredible opportunity because they do lead, you know, large companies and their players in major industries. So I think the real question is, are they going to be able to take that information as, you know, early adopters and, and people who are excited about technology and convince um, the old players in an old game that this is coming? You know, I spent... Um, at least an hour talking to this banker from, uh, well, I won't, I won't say what country, but I, you know, <laughs> speaking to a banker okay. who you know, understood the tech and understood what, um, what, you know, I was talking about and how society was going to change, but just could not really appreciate, um, why somebody wouldn't want a bank. And, and that's really my concern is that maybe we're going to hit so many brick walls with the old guard that it won't be worth trying to convince them. It will just really be worth, like, let's work with the new generation. Let's work with people who really get this versus trying to convince old systems. And I think that fundamentally is part of the ethos of blockchain is we're not trying to change the existing structures. We're not trying to change banks and governments and insurance companies. We're trying to replace them with completely with something different. Um, And that's why if you get these, these sort of older players or people who are less uh, adoptive of these new technologies, they're not going to exist anymore because they'll, they won't adapt, they won't change, they won't see where, where their industry is going. And I think um, that'll be a, a, the danger for them. Mm -hmm. But are younger decision makers, are they also attending Singularity or is it more the old guard? Yeah, so they have a, a few different programs. They actually have one called the Global Startup Program mm. that will accept impact-focused cool. startups that come in for, uh, I think it's about a 10-week program. They'll do portions of it around the world. They're looking at a program in, uh, I believe it's Denmark. Um, they'll go with 80 other people from around the world to learn all about the latest technology and how to implement that 10x mindset. Um, and then you'll come for the second half of the program to the NASA Ames Research Park in Mountain View and Silicon Valley, 
to essentially take your, your startup idea and really 10 exit, you know, and, and ensure that you're well set up to succeed as a, a company, but one that has an impact focus at its heart. Um, and so that's one of the, I did a version of that program a couple of years ago. And it really transforms the way you look at problems and the way you think about how we solve some of these major global, global challenges. Um, really looking at not creating that 10% improvement, but really creating that 10x improvement. Yeah. Yeah, interesting point. I mean, I, I want to ask one one more question about that because you said there are certain people who just don't see the need for decentralized systems and who mm -hmm. cannot imagine a world that is built on systems like a blockchain. Um, yeah. But what is the main deciding factor there? Is it age? Is it, you know, upbringing? What is it? I think more, I mean, age certainly often doesn't help, but it's not to say there aren't some very, very forward thinking you know, uh, older generation. I think honestly, the key thing is, is has, has this individual experienced a problem that blockchain can solve? And, and most people in say North America or Western Europe have not experienced something like that. So basically, so do I, they feel pain? Are they hungry? Do they have a pain point? Can they appreciate, you know, why having this freedom is, is truly important? You know, I had a situation about a month or two ago where I tried to send money from my bank to a crypto exchange. And this exchange is perfectly legal. It operates in Canada. There's it's everything is above board. And the bank just said no. And it was the first time in my life where I had really had someone say, you know, you've earned this money legally, you're storing it legally, you're moving it legally to a legal place. And we're just not going to let you do it. And, and that was a real rude awakening for me about, yeah, I don't really have control of my money. I don't have access to my money whenever I want it. Um, and that was a little bit scary for me, you know, but there are people that experience that absolutely every single day, you know, what currency controls in Argentina and Venezuela and places like that, where you can't just use your money the way you want to use it. And so it's really, I think about Have you experienced it or can you take your mind out of the world you grew up in and, and put yourself in the shoes of, of another individual around the world? Mm -hmm. Are there certain stories or narratives that work well to, to convey that point? Um, I, like to, I like to talk a lot about Zimbabwe and, and just how the inflation crisis that they had 10 years ago, what that looks like from a more practical perspective. So yeah, you can think, okay, 86 billion percent inflation, that's crazy. But when you're on the ground, that's people carrying wheelbarrows full of money to buy food, you know, and it's people looking at their paychecks and realizing that the money is worth absolutely nothing. So they stop working. And that's teachers that stop working and nurses that stop working. And so it, it's, it very quickly becomes a bit more of a visceral reaction to wow, like that, that causes the complete collapse of a society. And if you can't get healthcare anymore and you can't get education anymore, what happens to a population um, when that's the result of, of bad financial policy? Um, and, and so I think it's, you know, some of the same issues that we see with trying to convince people about climate change is nobody really cares about this two degree piece. What they care about is what if I get asthma because I can't breathe the air or what if I have a heart attack because of the pollutants that are, you know, in the environment, those are the things that people can relate to. And so I think it's really about not so much talking about the kind of abstract academic examples of, of blockchain and decentralization, but saying, if you're a human being and this is your life and this is, you know, the, the restrictions that you are living with, this is how this technology can change your world. Uh, and that makes it a little more tangible for people. And you're also an advisor to blockchain startups. And I mean, how, how do you work together with, with these companies normally? So it depends on, um, on the company I'm working with. I've, I'm working uh, with one company, particularly in Toronto, that was uh, originally not a blockchain company. It was uh, just a community, a very grassroots group of neighbors and friends that came together and wanted to swap items that they had in their house for stuff that other people had in their houses. Um, and it grew and grew to over a million people worldwide. And what they realized is that cryptocurrency could actually reduce a lot of the friction in some of these trades. And so they created their own token, but where they've taken it is really exciting. So they're actually flipping the advertising model on its head. So instead of taking a community and traditionally advertising them to them in the way that you normally would, 
they're actually ensuring that you know if the community interacts with these these advertisers or these you know community partners on the platform that they themselves as community members as users will receive between you know 60 and 70 percent of the benefit of, of financial returns on that ad um, and so it totally changes the way that these communities can interact with with people who want to connect with them uh, so I, I essentially work with them to help them understand the cryptocurrency from a technological perspective and then also from a market perspective uh, and how that works. So I'm looking at just how they can leverage the tech to take what they've got and uh, make it much better for the individuals that are a part of their community. I mean, do you have for, for the companies working with you or with, with advisors in general, do you have any advice to them how they could make most use you know of what the advisor offers how they could make the most impact with the ideas that that you bring to them yeah i have a lot of companies that will write me and ask me to be an advisor and it, it, it's an, a space that you know just because the word blockchain is in my profile they think that i'll be a good fit and i'm looking at it and it's some kind of like you know a car insurance product and i it's if the advisor isn't passionate about what you're building, they're not going to get behind you. They're not going to get behind what they're doing, you know? And so that's the key thing is be really smart about selecting someone that cares a lot about the industry that you're working in. Um, because then you're not going to be fighting to get their attention. They're going to be fighting to get yours, you know, because they found something exciting that they want to share with you. Um, and so I think that's really the key thing is, is you need to be looking for people that, that care a lot about what your mission is. Uh, and what your end goal is, is going to be. Mm -hmm. But once you once you start advising them, and, and sorry that I keep harping on this point, but I'm also advisor to some companies. And sometimes I feel some people are more open to ideas and others are, you know, maybe less open to some ideas. And I'm always wondering, you know, what are some kind of think shifts that you can inspire in people that you advise or companies that you advise that they really give it a try, that they are willing to, you know, to also risk a failure? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I like to look at past success and say, okay, we tried this crazy thing here and it worked. Or quite frankly, mm -hmm. come up and say, like, I think that there's a 70% probability this crazy idea will fail, but I think we should try it anyway. Um, and here's why, and, you know, here's where you can get resources and that kind of thing. I think, honestly, if you can build a good trust between yourselves and the founder, um, then even if you do fail, knowing that you're upfront about that possibility or upfront about you where this could go, that there won't be bad blood out the other side of it, you know, just say, I think this is worth giving it a shot, but it doesn't work, you know, it doesn't work. Yeah, definitely. But I mean, it's also, I mean, I've spoken to some people at a, at a big four consulting firm and they said, we're advising clients on blockchain technology, but actually, if we're really honest, it changes our own business much more than the business of the client. Yes. So we also had to learn how to deal with this uncertainty. And, and, and I think, you know, this openness is just super important. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Because it is such a new space. And, you know, you, there's a, a huge number of, of crypto, quote unquote, experts or advisors out there. Um, and the knowledge base is not that deep in a lot of them. So I think it's, it's really critical to also appreciate that because everything is so new, you and your clients or you and your you know, company you're working with are both going through this together to a certain extent um, and just trying to figure things out just like most of the rest of the industry. Yeah. And let's speak a little bit about uh, Blockchain Canada, where your device chair. Yeah, so Blockchain Canada is essentially... Just an industry association whose goal is to bring together both individuals, uh, startups, and government to the, the same table within the Canadian context to help ensure that we're all promoting the adoption of, of blockchain technology. So that can be everything from meetups and, and supporting just natural networking between individuals to looking at how we can have a voice at regulatory meetings and, and with regulatory bodies to ensure that anything the government is looking at doing will be pro blockchain, pro the blockchain industry in the Canadian sector, because we've got um, really an incredible pool of talent, particularly on the technical side coming from the Canadian uh, population. And so we're a very lucky country from that sense, but we're 
we'll end up losing people very quickly and losing companies if we're not smart about the laws that we're setting up and how we're supporting these types of companies to enable them to grow. Um, and so the organization is essentially trying to create a voice for blockchain within uh, the the Canadian context. How open is the, the government in Canada for this technology? It's not bad. Um, <laughs> in the very early days, when you look at kind of a, several years ago, the Senate really decided to take a light touch on regulation and let innovation grow and prevail. Now, um, that being said, it's, you know, the government hasn't been specifically designing legislation to promote the growth of blockchain companies in the sense like, you know, other countries like Malta or Singapore or others have, have been specifically designing to attract companies. Um, so it could be worse, could be better. Uh, but I think what we really need to be smart about is because we do have this natural talent pool um, is we need to really be thinking about it from a more proactive standpoint. The government needs to think about it from a proactive standpoint um, to ensure that we can keep these people here and and, uh, and grow and build the industry uh, right within our own country. I mean, if somebody had the option, let's say somebody was in Canada and had a startup with maybe a blockchain identity product and um, they raised seed funding from friends and family and now they want to scale. I mean, should they, in your view, should they stay in Canada or are they better off going to someplace like Silicon Valley? I mean, the reality at the end of the day is blockchain is fundamentally a global industry. So where you're physically located or, or registered is um, of significantly less consequence than it would be if you were running a traditional business. And so you could be one place and be raising all over the world, and uh, particularly around, you know, the tokenization of equity and that type of thing. It's a lot easier to, to get funds than it was in the past. Um, uh, you know, the Canadian culture on the whole is more conservative than the American culture, both in terms of investment and pace and, and that type of thing. But the blockchain industry within Canada is is not like that. It's you know very proactive, um, very keen on seeing the technology scale, particularly on the infrastructure side. And so um, you know I would encourage people to stay in Canada and and develop the technology here while tapping into whatever resources you know are available in Silicon Valley and, and elsewhere to help them boost. But um, it's not quite like if you're starting a more traditional business where you actually need to be more co-located with investors and, and that type of thing. What's the ecosystem like in Canada? I mean, does everybody know each other and, you know, do they all collaborate and, and see this as kind of a thing that they're building together or is it more like a competitive spirit? No, I mean, we, we've got an incredible community here. We had meetups in Toronto since 2012. We had the world's first Bitcoin ATM in Vancouver and the world's second in Toronto. Um, so this is a community that has, you know, we all started as people who are passionate about the tech and the impact of the tech. And so we became friends first and, and um, business colleagues as the industry grew. And so there's a real sense of how can I support your project? Who can I put you in touch with? You know, because the reality is it's very much a rising tide situation where mm -hmm. as the water goes up, everyone benefits. And so it, the, the community has been extraordinarily helpful, extraordinarily supportive. Um, and I, I hope it will continue to, to be that way. I recently also started speaking with people about women in technology and more particularly women in blockchain technology. And, and some women I speak with, they say they cannot hear this anymore. And others are very active mentoring in this regard. I mean, how do you gauge the blockchain space in terms of opportunities for women? No, I think the, the sector is certainly getting to be a better place for women to work. I mean, when I first got into the space, I'd go to meetups and it was me and 10 guys in hoodies and um, it, you know, I think it was, it was a very different world. And, um, I think the key thing is really looking at how can you get the, the best impact for inclusion? I mean, there's been tons of research on this sector, then this applies both to gender diversity, to diversity of thought, racial diversity, all these, all this, this whole area is that diversity is better. There's no question about it. Sometimes it is harder, but it is always better. Um, and so the key thing here, I think, is how can we learn from the mistakes of the past in other tech industries uh, to make sure that we can really get a head start? And so for myself, I feel 
I'm, I like a lot of the policies that I've seen from certain conferences. Consensus is one of them where instead of say having a women in blockchain panel, they will have a, a you know, we want to have 40% women speakers or 30% women speakers to, and they can talk about their projects because it's really not about talking about being female in the space. It's about giving the voices to women who are doing great things in the space. Um, and, you know, ensuring that young girls who are growing up have access to role models, but also to education and to equal access to opportunities um, within, you know, companies that are out there. Uh, and so I think the key thing is, is not about making it a, a women in blockchain thing, but, but appreciating that, you know, we are working on great things and um, how can we ensure those voices are amplified? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. That's that's spot on there. Um, do you have any role models who inspire you? Oh goodness, there's <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of incredible people in this space. I there's so one group that I I'm really proud of. They're from Toronto. It's they're called Crypto Chicks. Who inspire? Um, it's Elena Sinelnikova and uh, some of her colleagues have started this group, particularly to attract young girls to the hacking space and. Um, another colleague of mine, Amir Rosick from Blockies, put it so perfectly. He essentially said, you know, a lot of people are out there talking about women in tech and women in blockchain. And Elena and Crypto Chicks are doing the work. They are going out, they're doing hackathons, they're they're getting more women in the space to actually solve the problem instead of just talking about it. And so I think we're doing we're getting there. People are a little more aware of it now, right from the start. So that's good. But uh, there was a a fabulous article that I'll send you that about um, the crypt, the Coins Bank crypto cruise. Did you read this one? <laughs> yeah, that's that's fantastic that you bring that up because I read this article oh, today. God, it's the and um, I have article. a question about it because oh. Olga Feldmeier was quoted in the article saying, being a woman in blockchain is like riding a bicycle, except the bicycle is on fire and everything is on fire and you're and going, you're going to hell. To hell. <laughs> I mean, it was, there were so many quotables in that article. I was just like, it's yeah, so well like, written this article, but um, what do you make of such statements? I, oh man. I mean, yeah, the industry is, Look, it's the intersection of finance and, and tech. You know, it's, it was never going to be a great spot for women. Um, and so I think there's a balance between like women need to support each other and need to just take some risks and build some stuff. Um, but then they also need to be given the opportunity to get VC money and, and to, you know, have the, the access to the, the boys clubs that, you know, get you farther and get you kind of known. So it's, it's a trade-off. And I think there's still a lot of room to grow there. I spoke with uh, Aparna from She256 a few, few weeks ago, and she said there's really a huge bro culture happening in the blockchain space, much worse than in the tech space. I mean, that was just her take on it. Yeah, there's, there's a, so there's a few different like subsets of people within crypto, and you can kind of map them out based on when they got into the game. Um, but part of it is like, hyper bro but i it, but it like i feel like that article nailed it perfectly yeah we'll, we'll link to that articles in the description yeah um and for you was there ever a time where you found it difficult working in tech or especially difficult where you thought this is just so hard why am i doing this i think that the real piece for me has um wanting to be respected in the way that I felt that I should based on my experience and my knowledge and, and that, and, and often that just wasn't the case, you know, and it was a lot of subtle things. Um, you know, I had podcast interviewers talk about my hair and my looks and um, talk about me as a quota filler and these types of things. And, and it became a bit of a shadow ever over everything that I did that if, um, if I was treated with respect, people assumed it was because I was female and I was filling a quota and it wasn't because of the work I had done or on the flip side, if I wasn't, it was, you know, the work was irrelevant. Um, and so that was frustrating for me. Now it's, it's gotten better, but, um, I think there's, there's a lot of room to grow in the space. There's a lot of, uh, people who need to really look at diversity as a pro and, and see that as, as, um, an important thing, but also see that women and have added a lot of value to the space and recognizing that, um, 
the work that has been done. Yeah, yeah, just like in any other job and any other industry. Exactly, exactly. But I think particularly with blockchain, because we are building you know, what will be some of the infrastructure for uh, a lot of the, the key processes in our world, it's really critical to have these diverse voices as a part of the process right from the start. Um, because you don't know what you don't know. And there's these full populations you know, where you'll build something for them. And there was a great podcast interview that came out probably in 2015, I think, of this gentleman who went to Kenya and he was going to save Kenya with Bitcoin. And he went to the school and his whole thought was he would give them these iPads and people would send them money and then they could hold on to it and it would be worth a whole bunch of money. And so he, having never been to Africa, of course, he goes over to Kenya with these iPads, realizes that they break almost instantly in the dusty, you know, context that it was, and there's nowhere to charge them. Um, and that while the teachers were very thankful for them, like, I think they probably would have been thankful for anything. And he said what they didn't, what they needed wasn't Bitcoin. They needed food for lunch and they needed a clock on the wall and they needed some pencils. Um, and I think had he actually really brought the Kenyan educators into the fold in the early stages, he would have known that before he went um, and maybe could have done his project in a different way. And so I think it's really critical that um, as we are building what will be some of the fundamental infrastructure for the future of our society is that society is included in that process right from the start. What do you think is on the horizon for the blockchain space in maybe the next five years? Ooh, five years is a long way to project out in the blockchain. <laughs> I wanted to space. ask 10 first, but then I settled for five. <laughs> my goodness, five years. Oh, I don't know. My my real hope, I, so I'll tell you maybe my, my ideal hope and my worst case scenario that, that scares me. Um, my hope is that we're done convincing people that it's a good idea and that everybody is on board and it's really about how can we start to actually start using these applications in everyday life and in the real world so that the society can start to benefit from all of these you know projections and things we've been we've been evangelizing for so long that's what i would truly love to see my greatest fear however is that the technology will essentially be used um by the governments that you know we're trying to we're trying to provide freedom from in a lot of cases so if you have uh a dangerous government, one that's that's very oppressive, and all of a sudden they say, okay, we have our own national cryptocurrency, and mm. you have to pay your taxes in it, and you have to get paid your salary in it, and if you want healthcare, you have to pay for that in it, and essentially an ordinary citizen who doesn't have the same sort of technological options as maybe someone else would, is, is all of a sudden going to have every move they make completely tracked. Um, and that scares me to bits. It absolutely scares me to bits because it concerns me that these centralized powers that you know, we're trying to uh, enable more ownership of, of citizens and populations, but if these centralized powers get more power as a result and actually becomes more oppressive than it was in the past, um, I, that makes me really worry for a lot of the currently most oppressed people in, in today's world. Hmm. Yeah, good point. What do you think are the odds for this kind of dystopian scenario? They're not zero, I'll tell you that, They're not zero. Um, so I think the real key thing that we can do as an industry and as a, as a community is to ensure that the education about what the options are um, is available, you know, so if you can teach people how to use currency that they might, you know, be able to uh, keep to themselves or, not have concerns around inflation or that type of thing, um, that at least we give people the knowledge to know to go out and, and figure out how to do some of this stuff before they maybe don't have the option to do so. Mm -hmm. um, or at least educating people on what their rights are as, as a human being in this world and how they can help to fight for that or how we can look at structures of how people living far away might be able to help people who don't have access to those rights that they're entitled to and how we can help them get them. Um, there's actually a really cool company out of Toronto uh, called Better Place um, out of the, the Digital Public Square initiative at the Monk School that's looking at ways of, of how you can organize society to create positive change in the world. And that could include, you know, change um, both locally within one's own community or how can you leverage, say, the global diaspora of people to support changes that people want to do locally, um, even if they can't be local themselves. 
what could we all do, you know, who work with blockchain technology and in the crypto space to, to spread this education? So I think a few things need to happen. And first and foremost, we need to start to get coding into mm -hmm. the curriculum of traditional public schools. First and foremost, I mean, above any second language that kids should be learning, they should be learning how to code. Even if they don't go in to do it as a career, um, it's, it's absolutely fundamental to the vast majority of, of companies and interactions and services that we have in today's world. So that's, that's a number one. I think as a community, as a blockchain community, the more we can share even just, you know, how to buy and sell and send Bitcoin, that's such an easy entry point. It's something you can do with someone at the bar in five minutes, and it's a real aha moment for people. Um, and I think if you can open the door for them, it's a lot easier for them to then widen the gap, you know, and to, to open the door further and, and go in. Um, and so I think that's a, that's a really good start. And, but lastly, I think we need to start to improve the, the public perception of, of crypto and what it's about and what can it achieve because a lot of the news articles are about the volatility and the price jumps and then you look at things like uh, child porn and drugs and all of this when that's just such a tiny proportion of, of you know what crypto is used for and, and what the potential of decentralization and blockchain is. And so I think we need as a community to start to change the narrative around the technology and, and where it's going to take us as a, as a society. Yeah, definitely. We need better stories, I think. That's for <laughs> Me sure. too, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and if you had one wish you know, to change something, anything, in the way we humans deal with technology, what would that be? Oh, goodness. Ah, that's a great question. I, you know, I think at the end of the day, I, I wish the technology, the whole sector itself was more compassionate and more empathetic. Um, and where the human condition is, is factored into every piece of technology that is created. I went to a great event um, put on by the people-centered internet where their hope is that the future of technology and the future of connectivity has the, the human at the center of its construction. Um, and I really believe that that's important. You know, so instead of building some tech product that, you know, as we increasingly look at robots and AI and, and what's going to happen with our changing society, that, you know, if you can keep what really matters is human interaction and um, being good to one another at the core of, of the construction of all of these applications and infrastructure technologies, um, that that will help keep humanity human um, and keep us connected to the people in our world. Yeah, great. Um, where can people find you? Uh, so you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Anne underscore Connolly, or you can find me at anneconnolly.ca on the web. Mm -hmm. Cool. Excellent, Anne. This was really great. Really appreciate your time. And many thanks for coming on this podcast. All right. Take care. Thanks so much for joining us today. More info on our guests and our sponsors is in the show notes of this episode and on the podcast website, theblockchainandus.com. To help people find this podcast, it's important that you download, subscribe, and give it a top rating and review on iTunes or on the podcast platform of your choice. I'm Manuel Staggers, and I thank you very much for listening.